Welcome to Books, Inc. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Yeah, I'm a nervous public speaker, I'll just say that, so hi. But um, I'm the manager of the bookstore, and I'm so happy you're all here tonight. I love having authors in the store, of course, because they feed us, and um, we all love reading, of course. Um, thank you for joining us for this experience you cannot download. Um, <laughs> and then also, conversely, please be sure to follow us on social media. Um, <laughs> because, well, you know, we are on social media, even though we're bookies. Um, tonight we have these three fantastic women here with us. Um, our moderator, Sadia Ashraf, is a TV writer for Netflix, and her book, yay, Paint by Water. Um, Paint by Murder. <laughs> Paint by Murder. Oh, I made you read this too. That's okay. Paint by Murder. <laughs> um, based on a show she wrote is coming next year. So maybe we'll see you back for that. Um, I'm going to turn you over now to Sadia for further int introductions. Thank you so much. Thank Welcome, you. everyone. Let me know if you can hear me with the mic, or is this echoing too much? Okay, you can hear me. All right. Um, my husband tells me I'm really loud, so if I'm ever being loud, just kind of like give me the thumbs down whenever. <laughs> so, um, I want to start off by introducing our authors. First of all, thank you so much for coming and attending our event. We're really excited to have Sonia here. Uh, Anika, like me, is a local. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and introduce Sonia, and then I will introduce Anika, and then we're just going to have grill them a little bit, you know? I have some tough questions. And then after they answer the questions, if I feel like they've answered them well enough, I'm going <laughs> to open it up for you guys. Thank you. So uh, <laughs> um, by the way, I can grill them. They're friends, so there you go. Um, as many of you probably know, Sonia Kamal is an award-winning novelist, essayist, and public speaker. She is also a visiting professor at Emory University, um, and her novel, Unmarriageable, Pride and Prejudice in Pakistan, is a Financial Time Reader's Best Book of 2019, a New York Public Library at NPR Code Switch 2019 Summer Read, and it was also selected by Georgia Center for the book's 2019 list of books all Georgians should read, and now all Palo Altians, is that what we call them? <laughs> and aside from Unmarriageable, her debut novel, An Isolated Incident, was a finalist for the Townsend Award for Fiction and the KLF French Fiction. So give it up for Sonia. Thank you for being here. And now to jump to Anika. Anika Rana is an English professor right here at the San Mateo Community College. She has also taught at Stanford, University of San Francisco, and Lahore University of Management Sciences. So <coughs> let me talk a little bit about her novel, Wild Boar in the Cane Field. Um, it explores the lives of many South Asian women, especially the agrarian and the rural life. Um, and despite the fact that many of these women work as really disenfranchised um, farm laborers, and they have their lives marked by trauma and loss, in a way she's celebrating their lives through this book. So we're going to have a great conversation with us, with her, but I want to turn uh, to Sonia first and ask her a question before I start grilling Anika. Um, <laughs> so Sonia, so, lucky. <laughs> so Sonia, as you can see, we're all writers, we're more comfortable behind in our writing case than up here. 
everyone except Sonia, right? You're comfortable here. I'm always comfortable <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> um, so, Unmarriageable is a fresh take on Pride and Prejudice, <coughs> but it's set in Pakistan, so that's the twist. Um, it explores the identity of women, in my personal belief, in a world that's kind of a developing country, Pakistan, which is skating between tradition and the slow march to progress. In a way, as I was reading it, I felt like Pakistan was the perfect parallel to the Regency era because the situation that women face or find themselves in sometimes is remarkable in its resemblance to the time that the Bennett sister lived. Um, and within this parallel world, Sonia has created a, you know, a harmonious balance between Jane Austen's social satire, but also Pakistan's cultural setting. So, Sonia, let's start at the very beginning. <laughs> let's start with the title Unmarriageable itself. <laughs> I had to do a double take and say, did she do a Shakespeare on us? Did she just coin this word unmarriageable? Because it's so unique. So, what does this title mean to you and how did you come up with it? Um, well, while I was writing the novel, it actually had an alternate title. Um, it was my working title, but I always wanted a one-word title, and I couldn't think of something that was terribly fitting. But I will, sometimes marriage does come in use, um, because uh, my husband and I were visiting D.C., and we had a bit of a quarrel over where a certain museum should be. I said it should be this way, he said it should be that way. And I remember walking off in a huff and thinking, he's so unmarriageable. And I was like, I have my title. So if for nothing else, get married for your titles. So, um, so that's how the title, as soon as I you know, thought of that, I was like, this is perfect. You know, it's one word, it's going to fit. And, it, and I think it encapsulates so much of what, not just as Baksani or South Asian yeah. women, but just as women in general, and, and even men often, you know, a lot of men at some point in the, or the other, if you haven't felt unmarriageable yourself, someone has very kindly told you exactly why you are unmarriageable. And I was pleasantly surprised, pleasantly, when a lot of guys have told me also that, you know, they've had this word tossed at them or whatever, which, which was a little surprising too because I've always heard it in, con in, within the context of women. But that's where uh, the title <coughs> came nice. from. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, I'm going to switch to Anika. Anika, again, same question to you, because it's such a unique title, wild boar in the cane field. Like, in my mind, I imagine boars and hunting, and, you know, somewhere out, and then cane field is a very South Asian term. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about what the title means to you. So um, the title relates to my experience growing up in a village in the Punjab, surrounded by cane fields. So it comes really from my true experience. And um, the reason I wanted to use this title was that the world that I'm describing is there's always something ominous around it. And in this case, it's the boar. Um, and the characters that are living in this world, um, they have this fear of something that they have no control over. Uh, but what's ironic uh, that you will find about the boar in the book is that they also, like the characters in the book, are just trying to live their lives and care for their young. And so there's always this fear of something that will go out of control, something that will take over people's lives, and it's inexplicable, um, and, and these people, just like the boar, are trying to come to terms with life with this constant fear around them, and they can never really grasp onto what that 
uh, is, mm -hmm. what, what, what is creating that fear. And it's a term, you know, you, um, if you are familiar with the Punjab, it's a Punjabi term. And in fact, because of the unclean nature of a boar, it's also not even referred to by the name of a boar. It's usually referred to by unmentionable, kind of like the unmarriageable, but it, it, you don't even name the, the animal because of fear of the uncleanliness of this animal because of the cultural mm -hmm. and religious. Can you tell us the phrase? Uh, Barla. Okay. So as in an outsider. So, so there's, there's all these nuances of the culture, the region, and also the religion, the religious concepts as well. So, okay. Got it. <coughs> Thank you so much. So it's almost like an ominous foreshadowing, right, throughout. Um, now to switch to Sonia, um, this is a very basic question, and it's going to be the last basic question. Right. <laughs> After that, things will get tougher as I continue grilling you guys. So tell us how you conceived Unmarriageable and how the novel came to be, because I feel like it's a fascinating story. Okay. <laughs> All right. Those are two questions. <laughs> okay. Sorry. So the first one was <laughs> how it came to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so I first read Unmarriageable when I was 16. My aunt Helen actually gave me the novel Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice. My aunt Helen gave me Austen's um, novel when I was around 12, 13, 14. Some, I forget the exact age, but I was very young. And um, it was a gorgeous, um, this was in the 70s, and it was a gorgeous thick red leather, uh, gold-lettered embossed um, book. And I opened it up, and the first sentence of Pride and Prejudice, as, I, as those of you who are familiar with it know, you're welcome to recite it with me, <laughs> is it is a truth, truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be a wonderful wife. wife. Okay. <laughs> So I read that and I promptly closed the book and I said, I'm not reading this. <laughs> I don't, what the hell is this? Um, you know, I, but there were pictures in the book, which uh, the book referred to as colored plates, very nice, glossy. And um, I'd always flip through them every now and then and read the captions. And there was this one picture with um, these uh, t two guys and two women sitting at a breakfast table, and there was a woman on the threshold, and all the you know the the, the characters seated were looking at her in great surprise and disgust. And I always wondered, what did she do to make them look that way? Well, finally, I was in Lahore when I was around sixteen, and. Um, I guess it was a rainy day. I opened the book up again, and I read it cover to cover. And as soon as I finished it, it was, to me, a quintessentially Pakistani novel. You know, um, I, I don't necessarily see Austin as a romance writer. I don't think she herself was really very interested in Darcy and Elizabeth or the romances in her book, per se. I mean, she glosses over the proposals. She doesn't really give us wedding scenes at the end. She's, she's very much a social satirist. Um, in, interested in peeling back the layers of pretension and the la and the institutional um, reasons that people become the way they do, and I absolutely love that because it's see I, I I was born in Karachi. At six months, we left for England. At nine years of age, I went to Saudi Arabia, where I attended an international school, British and American, and then I returned to law, and we kept going back and forth to Pakistan all those years, but then I finally returned to Lahore at age um, 16, 15, 16, and um, then came out from my college here and stayed on. But those five years of my teenage years were very, very tough for me because I had unfortunately learned um, honesty when I wasn't <laughs> in Pakistan. And, and then it didn't, it didn't serve me very well once I went back, you know, because everyone would have preferred for women to 
behave correctly in public, no matter what they were doing behind closed doors, and I refused to play that game. Um, so it was it, it was a bit of a struggle surviving there in many respects. So as soon as I read Pride and Prejudice, I said, "This is." It really gave me a lot of comfort and solace to see a novel where the people and the society I was living in was so reflected. I mean, I saw Mr. Collins and I knew people like Catherine de Berg and Caroline Bingley and just all of them were there. And even though I didn't want to be a writer, um, if anyone's heard my TEDx talk, I talk about how I wanted to be an actress and I got a lot of um, acting offers, TV and drama and stuff, but my father unfortunately did not think it was respectable. And I listened to him with a lot of regret, so I didn't go that route, and I never wanted to be a writer, and becoming a writer was a very difficult struggle for me, because I had a lot of resentment towards writing, because in South Asian culture, being a writer for a, a woman was okay, because um, used to be on books, we didn't have the internet, obviously, and used to be on books, you never got an author's face, so you never really saw an author, you just read their words, but you didn't know what they looked like, so it could be anything, so um, I finally did become a writer, but it wasn't until I was older that I actually came across Thomas Babington Macaulay, who was part of the British Empire, and he actually set <coughs> colonial um, linguistic policy for for British Empire across, you know, he's the one who gave an address called Minute on Education in 1835 to British Parliament, in which he talked about how um, they he recommended replacing indigenous languages with English in order to create confused brown people who would be brown in skin but white in intellect and actually I use his um, one of my epigraphs is from that minute on education exactly saying that and, and, and I've grown up in the English medium system in Pakistan and as soon as I read that it was very shocking to me to see the very policy that was implemented that was then coming out of my mouth you know because I've grown up in English and, and, and to see the nefarious intent behind it also but that said, um, in partition in 1947, uh, both, uh, well, uh, Pakistan and India, but, you know, they, they took uh, English as one of their official languages. So English is very much a Pakistani language also. But, um, but I did want to, you know, the reason for writing this then became stronger for me because I wanted to do a post-colonial take, a reorienting, remapping, because as British subjects, we were supposed to look up to the English, look up to English literature, English everything, and never really perhaps meant to emulate or think we could do that. So for me, by taking a, Briti a class, you know, beloved British uh, classic novel, and I'm an Austen fan also, but taking Pride and Prejudice and doing a parallel narrative, and by that I mean it hits all the plot points and all the characters are in there, um, it is literally Pride and Prejudice in Pakistan. It's not an inspiration, it's not a sequel, it's not a prequel, but my reason for doing that was to take back language in a way. So it's, yes, English language, but it's set in a post-colonial country, so it's like coming full circle <coughs> in a way for me. So, you know, we can read Pride and Prejudice, <coughs> but for South Asians, we have our own Pride and Prejudice to read also in so many respects. So... That was the reason for Perfect. that. Perfect. Um, I think you've answered something that's going to lead me to a next question for Anika, and you and I have discussed this. Um, I would classify both books firmly in the genre of post-colonial literature if they were sold in South Asia only, but also they work as American novels written by diaspora community, you know? So talk to me, though, going back to post-colonialism, about those elements of post-colonialism in your book and also maybe talk about colonialism in general so that 
people sitting here who may not be familiar with what post-colonial means to us socially, culturally, um, intellectually, and also in literature, what some of those basics are. You, you can answer that hard definition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just wanted to kind of <coughs> add to what Sonia just mentioned. Yeah. Wasn't everyone an English teacher in Pakistan before they came to the US? Uh, because when I read that first chapter, that was me before I came to the US. Sure. So, so, so we can all see ourselves in that in her book. Um, they were engineers. Oh, okay. <laughs> they might have been too. So anyway, um, in response to your question, um, the location of my novel is extremely important. It's a space which uh, the Punjab, which means five rivers. And um, that space was a space in somewhere in the 1860s where the British came up with a grand irrigation canal system. And with that grand irrigation plan, which was probably the most audacious plan at that time in the world, a whole area was transformed. Now, this area was transformed to create, uh, you know, a similar to the valley that we have here, a place that would produce wheat, corn, all the staple food that was needed for the empire. And a lot of the indigenous folk were displaced from this area, and that is why there's this interplay of the canal system in the book that I've written, and the um, uh, cane fields that were created, and the indigenous animals that were displaced. And um, even the locals are not necessarily fully aware of all of this change that took place, which many benefited from, but many also had to suffer the consequences of this whole grand uh, system. Um, when it comes to um, the concept of post-colonialism and the use of the English language, and the stories that are told, that I have <coughs> chosen to tell in this book, um, I've really made an effort to present a story for someone who has studied English literature in Pakistan and then American literature in the US, and you know, really have engaged with the literary world on a student level. I have chosen to write a story in the language that I have learned. Um, and uh, I'm very close to, and it is also my first language, um, but with characters that are not usually seen in this language, with terminology which I have chosen not to explain, just like when I was introduced to a culture through the books that I read, without uh, you know, necessarily an explanation, whether it's Shakespeare, whether it's Jane Austen. Sure. I mean, yes, we studied it and we, we studied the history behind it as well, but I, I tried to portray a world where those who will engage with the language, will engage with the characters, which will engage with the story, will engage with the culture in a way where I'm telling the story as it is without creating, without providing glossaries, for example, sure. to, to be able to understand that context. So using the language that, that we've all studied, we've all look, you know, uh, understood the literature, but providing a story that is not usually part of yeah. this whole canon yeah. of, of writing. Right, especially from a rural background. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's still far and few between books set in rural Punjab or rural Sindh or, yes. you know, any of the, any of the rural communities in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. So yeah, definitely a valuable addition in that respect. Thank you.
So from geography and post-colonialism, we're going to go to gender. Um, what I love about both books is that they feature women. Uh, both of the sets of women in both of the books are different from different classes, from different education levels. Um, but they're both very strong women, not just the central protagonist, but even the supporting cast. Um, and I say cast, but I mean characters. Sorry, I work in Hollywood. Everybody's a cast. Um, but Sonia, turning to you, what I really like about your book is that, yes, it is a parallel to a Regency and some of the culture which you can perhaps escape, uh, explain to them when it comes to marriage, when it comes to expectations of women, is very similar to the Regency era. But when I read it, I was like, we're not in the 1800s after all, because these are women who are much stronger than their sure. Regency counterparts. And so to a Western reader, this may be extraordinary. You might think, uh, well, you've seen this stereotypical depiction of Muslim women um, in Hollywood and in the news. Um, so, but you've given us a realistic look at Pakistani women who are usually pretty kick-ass. <laughs> and how in your book have you depicted that? And um, give us some specific examples of these characters. Oh dear, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, um, um, I wanted to write um, a novel set in a Pakistan that I've lived in myself. Um, I certainly didn't think of an audience per se when I was writing this because you write for yourself. Uh, number one, but there's no agenda when you write. You know, you tell your story the way it is. Um, Unmarriageable is set in Lahore, Karachi, uh, a lot of other cities. Uh, my fictitious city, Dilipabad, comes up, which is an amalgamation of small cities in Pakistan. Um, and But, you know, like I often say to a lot of audiences, growing up in Pakistan in the 80s, I mean, I had visited vacation in the U.S., growing up, so I knew this was not true. However, had you not, all you would probably have known of the U.S. in Pakistan on TV was Baywatch and soap operas like Bold and Beautiful. And so, you know, for Pakistani who, you know, a lot of Pakistanis probably thought that all of you were running around in red bikinis doing highly immoral acts all day long, which is obviously not true. But uh, by, by dint of that, oftentimes when, when we live in a different country, sometimes our whole exposure to other countries are what we see on the news, right. which is a very, very narrow um, prism and window with which to see the world at large. And I wanted to set unmarriageable in the Pakistan that I knew. So And, and across classes also. I didn't want to... Um, I didn't want to restrict myself to any one class. So in Unmarriageable, we have people from, uh, you know, 1%. We have the upper middle class. We have the lower middle class. We have the lower class. So I tried to give a cross-section of society through a lot of different characters, through my equivalents of Elizabeth Bennet and Charlotte Lucas and Caroline Bingley, so, so that a whole, uh, you know, a whole cross-section of Pakistani um, class and culture would be depicted. Um, and 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 uh, you know so so in unmarriageable we have women who go to watch dramas they go to watch Ismail plays which play which were actually I went to watch them myself in Alhamra and Lahore if anyone's familiar with that they go to ca cafes to have coffee they uh, you know and they talk about men and how awful their mothers are like you would anywhere in the world 
they go, um, my Elizabeth Bennett, Alice uh, Bennett goes, um, she, she's a runner. She goes running in various parks in Lahore and in Islamabad. So I very much showed a world and a culture that I've lived myself, that we all live when we go to Pakistan. Um, so, so and, and, it's and, um, Dar- and Anne and Darcy's sister, you gave them a depth that wasn't even... Sure. Yes. Well, <laughs> Jane Austen doesn't want to hear that. <laughs> but um, but yeah. I mean, what I also did with as much as this is Pride and Prejudice in Pakistan, I obviously gave it my own original stamp too. And one thing that had always fascinated me was, um, you know, someone like Charlotte Lucas or Anne de Berg, who are side characters in Jane Austen. I wanted to flesh them out more. I wanted to give them a voice. I mean, Anne de Berg is Catherine de Berg's daughter, and in Austen's book, she has no voice. She doesn't say a single thing in the entire novel. I I wanted to give her her voice. So I very much gave her a voice in this. My I Charlotte like Yeah, thank you. My Charlotte Lucas, um, in Jane Austen, we we know Charlotte Lucas as the woman who chose to marry Elizabeth Bennett's jilted Mr. Collins. But what happened, what, you know, Charlotte is a very strong character. Actually, she's my favorite character in all of the Austen novels. People feel, and people in the West feel a lot of pity for Charlotte because she married, you know, Mr. Collins, who is not that great. But, you know, Charlotte takes her own life in her own hands. She has a lot of agency. She doesn't, she, she you know, marrying Mr. Collins is good for her. So she goes after what she wants. She's very modern and progressive in that way. She orchestrates his proposal to her. Um, and, and what I always found so fascinating was that Elizabeth does not, you know, most of us at a lot of ages tend to listen to our friends for advice. Charlotte doesn't take Elizabeth's advice. She doesn't care if Elizabeth approves or doesn't approve of her marrying Mr. Collins. She does what she wants to do, and that's a very mod. I mean, Regency England 200 years ago, and Austen was writing such modern progressive pers- perspectives, and she was a feminist. I very strongly believe that. And just because the word feminism wasn't coined or around there doesn't mean that those sentiments did not exist. So um, so I wanted to give Charlotte more heft. She's Sherry in my book. Give her more heft, show her agency, show how these things happened. And, and you know, all my Bennett sisters are, they have... Um, my Mary Bennett wanted to be a sportswoman. She wasn't allowed to be. My Kitty Bennett is... Um, she she's She's fat and she's fighting for body positivity and actually everything she hears in the novel is stuff I've heard myself but and I didn't actually put the nastier stuff in the novel because I thought no one would believe it um each of the sisters have um you know Mari Mari is a bit pretentious when it comes to religious sentiments and we all know people like that in Pakistan who can be a little over (laughs) self-righteous when even when they don't need to be so um (laughs) So, you know, I try to reflect a modern-day Pakistan. The novel is set in 2000-2001, and there was um, reason for that, which is uh, Austen is often criticized for not bringing in the larger world politics in her novels, but she does. But I wanted to give a contemporary reader a taste of that. And as we know, a major world event happened in 2001, and one of my sections starts with August 2001, and there have been quite a few readers who are expecting something to come up, and it doesn't come up at all. And, um, and that was my way of showing a contemporary reader how um, what Austen's own concerns were within a novel, uh, despite her knowledge of what was going po- the politics of her day. So there are a lot of mirrors to Austen's novel, but it's a standalone novel in its own right, too. Um, Unmarriageable is you don't have to know Jane Austen or have read Jane Austen. And I think in order to make it a standalone novel, all the characters, all the women, all the men, they had to be very much... Austin's creations, but my own original creations also. And so they're really, they're just contemporary bits and pieces of Pakistan. 
in all of it. Brilliant. So, yeah. I think that answers all the examples that I was looking for. Okay, um, good. And Anika, to turn to you, I would say a variation of that question is based on gender as well. Um, again, you have a world that's very patriarchal in your book because of the limitations of being in a rural area. Um, w but within that, you have very strong women, despite their problems, despite the cultural drawbacks, and despite the society that's very male-dominated, they manage to form this special feminine and maybe slash feminist, dare I say, bond. Because within the parameters of how much the chains allow them to go, they're going as much as they can push those chains or pull those chains. So speak to us about the strength of these women and how you manage that within a very strict society. So um, my characters, uh, Tara is the main <coughs> character. She's found on a train covered in flies by um, Bibi Safia, who's, who has just recently been widowed, and her maidservant, Amar Pagan. And this triage, this trio of, of three strong women, kind of uh, the center of the story. And um, similar to what you mentioned about marriage, it's, it's this hovering menace around all of them, you know, whether you're widowed or whether you're, you know, who, whose marriage, who will your marriage be arranged to. So there is this, just like the war, there's also the, the menace of marriage. Uh, and and they pay, they, they do kind of acknowledge, uh, Bhagna will constantly say, without a man, you're nothing. Mm -hmm. But she is a woman without a man, so to speak, because her husband has died when uh, she's expecting her third child. And uh, she is bringing up the, her three sons as probably uh, better than anyone could in this environment where she is now the sole uh, breadwinner for her family. Um, Tara similarly not having any support, not having any particular male support or female support, I and mean, both Paga and Safia do care for her, but she has to make her own choices. And in fact, one of the questions somebody has asked me about her character is that there are times where she's not that uh, character that you might say is very appealing. But to me, just like Charlotte's character, I feel that is how um, a strong person, whether it's a man or a woman or whatever gender they might associate with, what they will do, they will make the choices, they will take risks. And she takes quite a few risks in her brief life and she takes them knowing that she has to pay for the consequences, she's not going to blame others. And so my goal as I was writing this book, Tara's story, was to show the strength of the women that I had actually experienced, these characters are not based on any one individual, but they're an amalgamation of strong women who live in villages, who work with men in the fields, who do everything that is expected of them to do and live their lives, will give birth without having a midwife available. So they go through all of these uh, challenges in life, um, but still are able to pull through it. But the other element that I wanted to focus on was not just the gender disparity, but something that you had mentioned, Sonia, the, the really rigid class system and how difficult it is to move from one class to the next. And how precarious that is. Yes, a, and, and people knowing the rigidity of that system and knowing that there's no way of moving and, and, and attempting, so these young men attempt to get educated 
with the assumption that education will give them some leverage, but the reality is it's still a challenge. So um, it's been described as a downbeat part, <laughs> but, but that is the reality I wanted to share with my readers. Um, a reality, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, is a celebration of the people, and to some extent it's a it's what we all go through where, when things are not working out for us. In this case, it's an extreme situation, but it's still something I think that anyone on an individual basis can relate to when life is not going the way that they, they would like it to. Absolutely. <coughs> so um, thank you for answering that beautifully. Um, and I felt that you were, despite the tragic circumstances sometimes, or the trauma and the loss they were consistently going through, because of the harsh realness of your book, there was still this sense that it was a celebration of these women. So that's why I used that word. Um, so Sonia, there's a quote that I want to pick out I, it, from your book, I, and you obviously mentioned a variation of that in the beginning. Um, just in the first chapter itself, I think it's in the first chapter, okay. one of uh, Alice's uh, students says that it is a truth universally acknowledged that a girl can go from a pauper to a princess are to a princess to a pauper in the mere seconds it takes for her to accept a proposal. Um, so I recently accepted a proposal. No, <laughs> that was 21 years ago. But thank you. <laughs> um, I recently read a disturbing statistic, but it's a realistic statistic that 60% of all women in the world have an arranged marriage. And I'm going to amend that by saying since there's usually a partner attached to that, it's 60% of all people in the world have an arranged marriage. Yes, that is a stunning statistic. The reason why I know that is because I was pitching a show in Hollywood where one of the characters had an arranged marriage, and somebody at NBC said to me, yeah, but that's not, like, really realistic and stuff, because, like, most people in the world don't have an arranged marriage, right? I'm, like, right here, sitting right here, you know, and I know so many people, everyone I know back home had an arranged marriage, and they were just shocked. And they said, oh my God, we should totally show that. <laughs> so anyways, I digress. But to go back to you, Sonia, I think that that shocked me. To be honest with you, although I know a lot of people that are in marriages, I thought it would be more like maybe 10%, 15%. So I have a two-part question for you, Sonia. Um, going back to that uh, quote, Obviously, the kind of arranged marriages that ha are happening in the especially educated parts of South Asia are not the kind of arranged marriages that maybe, you know, the average Westerner might think, like a woman thrown headfirst into an sure. abyss. It's more like it is in the Jane Austen novels, um, you know, and therefore girls can relate to the Regency era where families are pushing girls into marriage for financial reasons. So the first part of the question is, can you speak about the economics of marriage in Pakistan as you illustrated in Unmarriageable? And the second part of this is, with the millennials, with the social media, do you think things are changing or are they still the same? So, first of all, there's a difference between arranged marriage and forced marriage. Um, forced marriages are obviously where the brides but maybe perhaps also the bridegrooms don't have a choice in the matter. They're told, this is who you're marrying, and that is it. And that is a forced, arranged marriage. Um, perhaps they were more prevalent and predominant, you know, in the past, 100 years or so, maybe even 60 years or so. What would you say, Nika? 
No? I I don't know, and I have that kind of okay. I, yeah. So so I don't want to necessarily put a number on it, but but what what with time has changed is the forced nature on it, or the and and by forced I almost mean that no one's putting a gun to your head necessarily, but there is a lot of emotional blackmail. There is a lot of expectation. I mean, this is a culture where marriage is an industry. Uh, you get, you have to get married, and one of the reason for that is in Muslim societies, um, you cannot legally have sex without marriage. You you don't date. You you know you you can't have children out of wedlock. Um, so there's a social necessity for this, um, uh, you know, for 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 marriage, and. Um, and people try to get married earlier for this reason also, so they can start their families, they can start you know, having a, a family life, having children. What over the years has become more predominant, and I, and I, I dare say perhaps always was in some aspect, is, um, is people meeting each other very much like you would in a blind date. You know, you have a friend who has a friend who they think will be good for you, and they're basing their assumption on perhaps a shared background or the fact that maybe you went to the same college or you both studied literature or you both like, I don't know, going to aquariums. But, you know, they think of certain, um, you know, um, things that you will have on common and they then introduce the two of you and you go off on a date. So in Pakistani or South Asian cultures, those dates might take place in a drawing room and they might take pla- they might take place in a restaurant with a chaperone, but they're very much that equivalent of a blind date, that aspect of it where either your friends are thinking that you two will be compatible or your parents or your family members are thinking that there there'll be compatibility there. And then very often, you know, if there is no compatibility, the women and the men are at leisure to say we don't like this person. And I think this has become a lot more common because with t- in the last 20 to 15 30 years, um, women have been um, you know, you bought up millennials, but Women are not just educated. I think Pakistani women have always been educated to a certain extent, um, especially of certain classes. Um, but women are working. Women are earning their own money, and women are earning good money. And when you earn, when you are economically independent, that stress on marrying for financial security absolutely falls apart. And even if you do get into an arranged marriage and you find that that person, after all, is not compatible for you, if you are able to pay your own bills and you're able to pay them well, you don't need to stay in that marriage. So divorce has gone up also. So economic independence, which has always been a man's right per se, is now very much a woman's domain too. And the more women who are realizing it, um, so arranged marriage is not this nefarious thing for me. It's very much, it's like, it's like you know, introducing friends to each other. Hey, I think you two would get along. Why don't you guys go out for coffee? It's the same sort of thing. And if you don't, you don't. Um, so that statistic that you quoted, the 60%, I, I don't necessarily find it very odd, uh, per se, because a lot of things are arranged. Friendships are arranged. Colleges are, I think that college would be a good fit for you. Arranged is not a word we need to necessarily be fearful of, you know, we all live under a lot of arrangements without even sometimes realizing how much of our lives and relationships are being arranged. Um, but the good thing is that sometimes in marriage and traditional cultures, those arrangements were meant to last for a lifetime, 
And that, thankfully, has fallen off because, you know, if an arrangement doesn't work, if you meet a friend and you decide 10 years later you don't want to be friends with them anymore, you stop being friends. So with divorce and with the option of paying your own bills, that, that choice comes to you, comes to you too. And I've completely forgotten what your second question was. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've answered the second part because you've talked about millennials. Tell us a little bit oh. about arranged marriage in your book. Okay, so so I think uh, part of the second an yes, the part of the second que- the question also was though that it, Jane Austen's Regency period, two hundred years plus ago, and contemporary Pakistan or contemporary any traditional culture, the difference is that in Jane Austen's time in in Regency England, women literally could not work. They were not legally allowed to work, per se. There were no jobs for them. Your job was to get married, and your job was to run a household, and that was it. Depending on your class also, per se. I mean, if you came from the servant class, you actually had perhaps more independence because you could work as a maid, you could work as a cook, you could earn some money. But if you were from Jane Austen's class, from a genteel class, <coughs> you were very much relegated to becoming a wife. The only job open to you was that of governess, And governess was not, and Austin never really liked the role of governess because it put you in a weird position. You were educated, so you weren't a servant, but since you were employed and working for a living, you weren't part of that family either. So often you would find yourself very alone. You would be eating alone in, in the nursery. You would be doing a lot of things alone. So, so, it, wasn't, so it wasn't necessarily a career women really wanted to have. Um, but thankfully in contemporary Pakistan and around the world that's no longer the case you know I mean in Pakistan alone we have my god we have um, we've had a female head of state <laughs> we've had um, you know we've had we have a cricket team a vibrant cricket cricket team we have CEOs we have models we have actresses my mo- own mother's an anesthesiologist you have writers you have you I mean we're bankers you have doctors nurse everything women women are in every profession over there um, police force military uh, you know everything so so it's obviously not Regency England in that aspect anymore which actually made it more fascinating as to why then would women want to get married when they can do what they want to do truth is a lot of women some you know some it is becoming more the case that if a woman doesn't find the right person, she sometimes chooses not to get married because truly it's, 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 you will be much happier being by yourself than you will be in a miserable relationship. <laughs> I think a lot of women know that instinctively and, and now being able to earn their own, they're able to exercise that. But so as uh, the parallels that I saw between Regency England in Unmarriageable and contemporary Pakistan were more the emphasis on, on, on what a good woman means and what it means to be a successful man and what a, what a marriage means or doesn't mean. So it was more the social mores rather than the actual physical aspects of it. Because women can do, you know, whatever they want to do in Pakistan. But back to Anika's point for a second also about the social rigidity, that definitely, that class system which is emulated on the British class system which the British Empire bought in so many ways, that is yet still very entrenched within Pakistani society. And I reflect and I show that in the novel yeah. too. Thank you for answering that. Um, so Anika, we're gonna switch from marriage to magic. Um, you know, what I felt while I was reading your book was that there were elements of super realism, like a very detailed, photorealistic portrait, but then also magic realism, because there were elements, for example, um, the, 
you know, there's a section of the book that's narrated by a swarm of flies. And I thought that was such a fascinating literary device because it was kind of a brilliant strategy also to bring it because she was found when she was born in a swarm of flies. So that's cute. That's, that's the first part. <laughs> and naturally, I have a second part. Um, so, yeah, so were you using magic realism because... In a way, the superstitions and, you know, sort of the rituals kind of correlate with magic in a way. And also, did you feel like the ancient beliefs that these people had while you were also working with it as a literary device <coughs> was the only way for these people to find some relief from how harsh life was? So, if you could answer that. Thank you. Um, so... We're all here because we like stories. Unless, of course, you're married to me and I've asked you to be here. Asked or commanded. And that element of storytelling, I feel, is, uh, was a reason that I wanted to write. And also was the reason why I thought, I want to add elements to the story which, yes, our day-to-day -day lives have fascinating elements in them. They, they have beauty, they have sorrow, they have conflict, all the things that you would need in a good story. But there's that something else out there that kind of adds to the story. And I kept on looking for that, what that something else was. And somehow I was obsessed with this idea that I needed flies. Because if anyone's been to Pakistan, you know that you know <laughs> flies are very much part of the surrounding, the environment. And those of you who have studied literature, you also know that that connection with flies, sometimes with Satan and you know all other kinds of... And so I was thinking, I need to bring those flies in. And I don't know why I was obsessed with this idea. And I didn't want to bring them in as the stereotypical fly. I wanted to break the stereotype of flies. <laughs> and so uh, these flies that come uh, uh, at the beginning of the story and are seen throughout the story. They're highly and educated. Flies. They potentially <laughs> are educated. Uh, <laughs> But it, it's kind of looking at the world from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I did a lot of research. I thought, okay, what's the element? Why flies? I mean, if you, if you study the, the, the way the fly looks at things, the vision is very different. It's multidimensional. So I thought, that works. So now you're looking at the world uh, with a dimension that the human being cannot see. And when we see our day-to-day -day life, we think we are sensing everything. We, we think we, we can see everything that's going on. But there are elements that we cannot explain. And um, so I wanted to question that. And that's why I introduced the flies. And that's why I wanted them to tell the story at the end. And that's why I created a shrine for them. The, the keeper of the flies, shri the shrine of Saimakiyamwala, is central to the story. This is a man who, who thought everything was, every living thing is, needs to be cared for, including flies. And therefore, when he died, they created a shrine for him. Uh, and this is, this is the shrine that the villagers come to 
to pray for and of all religious and, and this is kind of culturally something that is common in Pakistan as well that shrines are not necessarily connected to each and one individual religion people from different uh, religious groups will come to a shrine to uh, pray or to give offerings so uh, as you can see, I wanted to have fun with this idea of the story that I'm telling and the animals and the insects. And, and I did a lot of research around the plants, the flora, the fauna, uh, to make sure that I was accurate, not just based on my own experiences, but also um, you know, uh, on what is relevant to that uh, area. And you can see I got so energized about that first part of the question. I don't remember the second <laughs> part. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you about, and actually this might be a separate question, but mm -hmm. I felt like the way that these people survived these really difficult circumstances was through this reliance on ancient beliefs, symbolism, superstitions. Um, I remember reading some, you know, crazy superstitions, you mm -hmm. know, when you were younger and your mom would always tell you about home remedies. Uh, my mom was a scientist, so she would be like, that is absolute nonsense. <laughs> but she would tell us anyways what they were. But can you speak to those superstitions um, and ancient beliefs and how much these characters rely on them through all of this tragedy? It's almost like they cling to it. Is it because you wanted to, is it because that's the only way for them to find hope, I guess? Well, I think similar to our knocking on wood and our crossing our fingers and not going under a ladder, all of those superstitions, I, I feel that whether it was superstitions or whether it was religious belief was not necessarily thought deeply about. It was kind of, and this exists. All of these things exist around us, and then we have to keep living our lives. So actually it was not, they, they were... They were trying at times, for example, when Pagan keeps going to the shrine to give her offerings, she is probably the one who holds on to this belief, but a lot of the characters do not really believe it. They just think, okay, this is also something that we should be doing, and so let's go with that tradition and the ritual that we have to go with and see how it can you know, make a change to our life. So. Okay, brilliant. Um, Sonia, switching to you, talk to us about the publication of the book, the way that it was written as a thesis and everything. That's a very interesting story. Okay, so, so um, I'm extremely smart. <laughs> okay, I want that. <laughs> that, was <And> I <laughs> that was supposed to be something to laugh at. <laughs> well, Correct? it's true. <laughs> I decided in my old age to do a four-year full-time master's. I had three kids. My youngest was four at the time. So like I said, extremely smart. Um, it was ridiculous. And um, being Pakistan, being Pakistani, I have this very weird habit of not being able to quit anything, <laughs> even if I realize within two minutes that I should run from what is happening, I run towards what is happening. <laughs> so like a bloody fool, I, I sat there for those four years 
of, um, it was a master's in creative writing, but it hasn't had an academic aspect to it. So as much as I would have liked to be immersed in workshop and working on short stories and novels, I was stuck writing 20, 30 page academic papers. And I loved the classes, I loved my professors, I loved what I was learning, but I hated writing academic papers and if I ever hear the phrase secondary source again (laughs) I will (laughs) not buy you coffee so um, you know it was it was very very hard turned out that um, uh, for my master's thesis I should have had at least two years to a year and a half to work on a novel or short story collection and because of a glitch in the syllabus that I was given I had two months So um, my scholarship and funding was finishing, uh, and I did not want to, my youngest at this point was eight, and did not want me out of the house anymore. So I literally wrote Unmarriageable in two months. And it was was extremely, it was really excruciatingly hard. Um, I think Sadi asked this question because the happy ending is for that four-year full-time master's there is a happy ending. I was able to write a novel, and it did get picked up within weeks, and it got published. And so there is that. And if this this had not happened, I I wouldn't. Oh, I'd be such a different bad mood person. <laughs> but um, but you know that those two months turned out to be a weird blessing in disguise. Also, because when you're taking on a book like Pride and Prejudice and Jane Austen, and trying to do what I wanted to do with it, which is a post-colonial retelling you do feel very intimidated, you know, because you're taking on what is, I will go as far as to say, the most beloved classic, British classic in the world at this point, I would say. Sorry, Shakespeare and Dickens, but no, <laughs> Jane Austen as you beat on that one with Pride and Prejudice. Um, you know, and I was, uh, if anyone's familiar with this uh, association, the Society in North America, and otherwise um, JASNA, Jane Austen Society of North America, they have chapters in every city, and they know their Austen inside out and they are very severe and very hard task masters of, of people who you know do sequels retellings etc and what I was doing I call it a parallel narrative and I think at this point in time this is the first and only parallel narrative of, of any book but especially um, Pride and Prejudice and I was very intimidated by what they were going to think about this you know and then, and then um, you know I had to be authentic to my culture also I mean, when I read a book set in China or Russia or Nigeria, I'm not part of that culture. So, you know, they could write the most absurd things. I won't know any better, but obviously people from those cultures would. So I couldn't just write anything because it was convenient to me. I had to find parallels 200 years later in time with Pakistani culture, you know, something that would um, equate to Netherfield Park (coughs) and Pride and Prejudice, some reason why my Jane Bennett would find herself stuck overnight with a strange man, Bingley, Um, you know, so so these were hard things to mirror and parallel, but, um, you know, uh, I had been wanting to write this for a very long time, but very intimidated, and then suddenly I just had two months, I didn't have time to be intimidated, I had to do it. And, and that crunch of two months allowed me to drown out every voice that I thought would be would censure me for having done something like this. And, and that itself really, really was a blessing in disguise because I was able to, to do it. So finish it for that reason. So, so the next book, how many months will you, you take? You know, my first <laughs> novel, which is um, An Isolated Incident, it takes place in Kashmir. 
And I wrote it because my grandfather, almost on his, he was from a refugee from Kashmir, on his deathbed, asked me to write about Kashmir. So I was sort of stuck writing a, a, a book in, set in Kashmir. And it's about gang rape, and it's about terrorism, and it's about idealism, and it's about wanting to change the world, which is very different at the dinner table versus when you go out in the real world. And um, that book took me 10 years to write. A um, lot of research, a lot of rewriting. I don't mean revising. I literally mean throwing out, a, you know, 300 pages, starting again, 300 pages. So I'm hoping between 10 years and two months, <laughs> the next book will take a week or so. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? You work well under pressure. I, 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 yes, yeah, who knows? Okay. <laughs> I think by nature all writers are procrastinators, so when they hear the crack of the gun, they have to go. Mm-hmm. Which uh, I want to segue to you, Anika. Like, what was the process? Um, by the way, P.S. Postscript on Sonia's. Um, she's been kind of modest, but what I found out was that her novel she had a bidding out. war. So that's mm-hmm. kind of unique. There was a bidding war, and. We got what was the next question for Anika? <laughs> <laughs> so now Sonia has completely started to blush. Awkward right home. Um, Anika, tell us a little bit about the way that you conceived the novel and how you came up with it. And was it something that was conscious? Was it something that had been lingering in your you know, notebook for a while or your mind? What, can, what made it come to life? So first I want to agree with you. When, when you go back to school with a family, it all makes so much more sense. I don't know why we make kids go to school before they're in a relationship. <laughs> so, but we've done it, so, and they've gotten through, but yeah. I agree with you. Um, with my story, I had been going to the Mendocino Writers Conference for many years, and um, every time I'd go, I would write uh, an essay, personal essays, and I thought, I had an interesting experience growing up on a farm in Pakistan. I need to capture it. Um, They're fond memories, uh, unique experiences, and how should I... So for quite a few years, I was writing personal essays until I realized that I really want uh, control over the stories. And I know as a personal essay writer, you can still have control over the story, but I wanted to take liberties, like having flies have an important role in the stories. And so the actual story um, came about over the last four years. And, um, And then the last year or so, I kind of... Once I had, I kept on making an outline and what would happen where, where there was going to be this shrine. And so the scenes kept on moving from the beginning to the end. And then the characters, and then I, you know, some characters were more important. So it kept on changing over the four years. But in the last six months of those four years, um, the story came together and I felt more comfortable with it. And then I reached out to She Writes Press and, you know, they, was able to work with them to have it published and and now I'm hopefully getting uh, another version published in Pakistan as well so it is a story I think because the heart of the story is in Pakistan that's why I want to make sure that the, the story is Are you writing something else? I am actually uh, I've already started thinking I've got a title, I love mm-hmm. having titles first, <laughs> it's A Sanctuary for Dancing Bears mm-hmm. and it's based on uh, an actual sanctuary that does exist in an, a region in Pakistan um, 
beer beating was um, uh, banned uh, 10 years ago, and so a sanctuary was created for bears. Where is it? It's uh, near, it's off of the freeway near Dorksial, um, near Jhelum okay. area. And it was originally in Savak, but because of the floods, they mm -hmm. had to move it to another area. And so, uh, again, the, the, the title is there. The stories will be, I, I think I like the idea of magic realism, but I also like the idea of, even though it's dancing bears, which brings a smile to people's mind, there's this whole trauma around it, uh, which will be an yes. important part of the story. And, and, and I have to make a personal request, if you yes. can fit it in. Yes. I, um, I really want to know what happens to the mother who leaves her baby on the train. Because she... I'm not, I don't want to give any spoilers in mm -hmm. this book, mm -hmm. but if you can fit her in somewhere I was thinking in that, of, yes. Because <laughs> I'd love to, I mean, it's so traumatic yes, just to yes. read that mm -hmm. and, and what happens with that and stuff. And um, and I don't want to leave it at that. I want more. So she, please, okay. she'll be back. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Some of the characters will be okay, back. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, Sonia, I think I have like one last question for you and then... What we should do is we should ask if there's something that's left that you guys wanted to say and then we'll open it up to the audiences. So Sonia, this is a quirky, funny question. Um, okay. <laughs> so when I read in the book where it says, you see, being down in the dumps without their former wealth, Mrs. Binat only saw two types of proposal for her poor girls, the absurdites and the abrods. So I love this. I love this classification of men as the absurdites, as the abroads, but I know many people probably don't comprehend that, um, especially people who are not, you know, maybe up on the culture, but talk to us about the social, cultural, and economic ramification of the absurdites and the abroads. Quirky question for you. <laughs> yes, it's quirky, but it's such, a, it's such a huge question, and it can go on forever, and... Um, and Anika, you can join me in answering this one. <laughs> so I'm not going to do this alone. So, um, so, um, so the absurdities and the abroads are two categories that my Mrs. Bennett puts men in. And these are two men that she doesn't want her daughters marrying. The absurdities, as she likes to call them, are your middle Miss management men. <laughs> Mr. Collin types. Yeah, uh, well, no, Mr. Collins he's is not because yeah. he's a doctor, he's well off. She's, to, she's thinking about doctors who are, who are being sent to rural areas. You know, they're not earning much. They're stuck in, they're stuck in wild boar country. <laughs> and she doesn't want to send her daughters there. You know, they're restaurant managers. And they're your, they're your like, middle-class yeah, accountants, but not financial directors, but <laughs> school accountants. You know, they're both doing the same thing, but there's a difference in those. So she doesn't want her daughter stuck there. And the abroads are very much what many of us are, which is she doesn't want to send her daughters married and abroad because they're going to be glorified servants and sex workers over there for their husbands. Because unlike Pakistan, where if not many servants, they'll at least be able to afford one servant some domestic help over here, you know, whether it's the US or Canada or Australia or England, etc. Um, even if you can afford help, it's not the same sort of social system as it is in Pakistan or India or, you know, one of the many countries where, for, where domestic help is very affordable. So she doesn't want to send her daughters abroad because, um, you know, they will spend, they will ruin their, they will, they will ruin their beauty basically by working, you know, cleaning, cooking, driving, having kids, just doing all of that stuff by themselves. So what in 
the Pakistani economy per se, or at least Mrs. Bennett, because my Mrs. Bennett comes from the lower class, and she marries extremely well because she's very good looking. My Mr. Bennett happens to see her in a beauty salon and falls for her looks, and is the highlight of my Mrs. Bennett's life <laughs> that she has been honored by you know going up in the world just on looks alone. So she expects the same performance from her daughters. <laughs> and she doesn't understand why it's not happening. So, um, But she has very distinct reasons for why she wants her daughters to marry well and who she wants them to marry. And, um, and you know, as funny as it may be, this is, you know, this is and very prevalent. Yeah, you and take you're, over. You're, you're <laughs> pointing out the absurdity of a system, uh, you know, that quantifies relationships in such a way. But, but, but you mm-hmm. know, Nika, I would say that as absurd as this sounds in, in terms of Pakistan, etc., there are a lot of absurdities that I find in the U.S., yeah, you know, course, and in other course. cultures also, yeah. where, you know, there'll be, there are women who are literally looking for Ivy League graduates. Yeah, yeah. They're looking for people who are not mm-hmm. just accountants or bankers. Mm-hmm. They better be on Wall Street. Yeah. You know, so people have their own categories of what sort of lifestyle they want to live. If you're happy being a trophy wife, and that's what that's your ambition in life, that's your ambition in life. And thanks to reality TV, you can have a pretty good run with that ambition in that life these days because yeah. they're called the real housewives, <laughs> unlike the rest of us who are fake housewives. <laughs> so, so, you know, so it does, it's not just something prevalent to Pakistan per no, se, which no. is, and, 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 you know, I do try to bring that up in the novel also, that, that each culture in each country and stuff has its own unique set of absurdities and abroads often, you know, or, or unique categories of absolutely silly criteria Mm-hmm. for marriage or no marriage. Um, yeah. It's a totally universal agree. thing. You yes, know? yes. And uh, I think that one of the challenges that a lot of women have when they come to America or if they're diaspora or immigration is that they're also doing the domestic work, but then they're also doing a job. Right. Whereas in Pakistan, I guess because of the economic situation of the really, um, you know, the real working class, they it's easier to hire them and get more domestic help. So when women go out to work, they have <coughs> help at home. Mm-hmm. Whereas in America, we don't. Sure, we don't. But then I'll say with Pakistan also, it comes down to class also. You know, the the more affluent you are, the more domestic help you can afford. Again, that's um, universal, right? Sure, but but Here but you too. know, it, interestingly enough, um, the person who comes to clean my house, uh, well, my parents' house in Pakistan, she has someone who comes to clean her house. So you know, or at least wipe the floors. And 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 um, it's it's all a very fascinating system with its myriad nuances, which if you belong there, you get and are very difficult to explain otherwise, you know? Um, but, but yeah, I mean, coming from a culture where there... And, you know, if you don't have domestic help or you can't afford it and you live in a joint family system, by dint of that joint family, you have grandparents, you have uncles and aunts and older cousins helping you take care of your children while you either go to work or you're working in the kitchen or whatever. So you're never, ter- you're never, re- you're never left alone by yourself over there to um, to manage a household and children, and if you are at all career-oriented, outside career, to manage that also, and it can get very overwhelming um, without any help or any family, and especially, I mean, as an immigrant myself, um, I've moved in a lot of states, no help often, and I bought up my three kids and very much struggled to make sure that I had a career, and it's extremely exhausting because I do know an alternate life where there is a lot of help and you're not that exhausted, you know. You're so, Anika. But you, you do also <laughs> mention in the book the the teachers 
in the school that your main yes. characters are teaching, the, the, the teachers who do not have that support. Sure, I wanted and that. Yeah, yes. like so I you said, do present kind of the range. Yes, of yes. Lives. I mean, I very much. I, I would. I would. I would. I appreciate novels where where one strata. I wanted to show as many stratas of Pakistan as I could. I wanted to show that advantage and privileges. Um, there is no, like Adichie says in her in her TED, TED talk um, about on single stories, that there is no single story, and there's no single story in Pakistan or any country, depending on the class that you're born to, and then depending on the family within that class that you're born to, can often determine the trajectory of your life. I mean, the example I like to give was that, um, you know, did I come from a conservative or progressive family because my father didn't let me become an actress? But, you know, but, um, but, you know, they sent me off in the early 1990s to come to the U.S. by myself to go to college. So are they conservative? Are they progressive? I mean, it's, it, was, it was very confusing to me what the hell they were. But, um, but you know, so, so, so there is no single story. My story is not Anika's story or Sadia's story or anyone's story. We each have our own stories within Pakistan. And I wanted to reflect that very much, yes, and unmarriageable, that, um, you know, we have the school teachers uh, where my um, Bennett sisters, Jane and Elizabeth, are working in this small town. They're working in the same school, but because they come from um, a pedigreed family, their idea of working and their idea of what their life is going to be is very different from the teachers in this family, that in this town that come from the lower middle class. Because even though they're being worked to the bone, the fact that they're able to earn some income and have their own life is very, very important to them, you know? So there is agency there, no matter how tired they are, no matter how many other responsibilities their families expect them to, to fulfill. But And then we have people like Anderberg in Unmarriageable who've, you know, done the runway in New York and they have so many servants they don't know what to do with themselves. And so I wanted to show a huge gamut, you know, as much as I possibly could of Pakistan without presenting, without sticking Unmarriageable in one social strata and saying, this is Pakistan. Because it's not. There are a million stories in Pakistan as there are a million stories in the U.S. and everywhere, diaspora or otherwise. So. Um, I think um, this was a great discussion and if there isn't anything that you think I've left out, what I would love to do is open it up to the room for questions. How does that sound, ladies? Good. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> so I would just like to do a C <laughs> by raising a hand. Yes. Um, I have a question for both authors. Um, it seems like you've spent time living in Pakistan, also living in the States. Um, so what do you think it is about your Pakistan identity that makes you want to set your stories in that landscape and like not talk about being a part of the Pakistan diaspora here or any other sure. Um, actually, Unmarriageable is set in Pakistan by dint of what I was trying to do, but um, I have myriad short stories which are set in the U.S. in different states. And uh, my first novel, An Isolated Incident, the, um, one of the protagonists, um, Bilal, who goes by Billy, um, is uh, his parents are doctors in um, the D.C. area. And he's grown up affluent, very much diaspora kids. 
his parents have different ideas of what of how they should behave the kids grown up here have different ideas of how they should behave but it's not necessarily a, a generational clash per se the the story uh, that novel tries to address from at least an immigrant perspective about um, uh, how parents how parents want their kids to assimilate and how they themselves assimilate too because they want that assimilation rather than parents who want to keep their kids attached to a culture which the kids are not really part of or living. I mean, I think both Anika and I, you know, we've grown up in Pakistan. We've spent significant times of our lives in there. We are not, as much as I was an immigrant kid in some respects, growing up in Saudi Arabia and England and stuff, I, I've spent huge, I mean, a great number of years in Pakistan, and I go very frequently. So unlike my kids, who um, do not go that frequently, they, you know, they... And, and I keep reminding my kids that your nanny's house or whatever is not all of Pakistan, you know. So so we're able to, I think, set stories here because we live here too, but very much and very authentically set stories there too because we have our finger on the pulse in Pakistan also. Our Pakistan is diverse. We know Pakistan rather than just being tourist immigrant grandchildren who visited or whatever once or twice. Sonia, uh, you recently had a story published that was set in America, right? At uh, Vanity Fair, was it? or uh, New York Times? No. Oh, essay. Oh, essay. Sorry. Sure. Okay. It wasn't a short story then. Well, I've because had essays and short But you, you published short stories where I the have. characters were Americans who are from South Asia. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got lots of short... In fact, I have one short story that just made the um, best South Asian short stories anthology and stuff. And it's about... I, I like to... I like. It's a little bit different because it's an elderly couple who have to migrate to the U.S. and in their 70s or so have to assimilate. Their kids live here. Um, and they have to... They have to learn, which, I mean, it's very hard at any age, but they have to learn in their old age how the hell they're going to make this new country their home and how the hell they're going to be buried over here, you know? What does home even mean in that respect? But instead of doing it from generational clash between kids and parents, I wanted to do it from another way. I have another short story, Runaway Truck Ramp, that's in several anthologies, and I really like playing with cultural misunderstanding and especially sexual cultural misunderstanding. So the, a Pakistani guy from an affluent family and a Midwestern young white woman go on a road trip together, actually from Denver to California, <laughs> as I once did with my husband though but who cares <laughs> but uh, you said that's the Pakistan you and me kicking in saying with my husband I mean whatever <laughs> but um, but you know and I took notes on that way but you know they um, the, the, the Pakistani guy is engaged but they still have sex he exp- she there's a lot of miscommunication between what she should do what he should do what they shouldn't do and she has this fiance and, and the white girl thinks that he will leave his fiance. You know, she okay. I will spoil the story for everyone. At one point, she calls the fiance up in Pakistan and she says, "Do you know what your boyfriend is up to?" And she's expecting the girl to be horrified and whatever. And the girl is like, "Yeah, but I'm the one who's going to marry him. And if you are sleeping with him, that's your problem, not mine, because I'll be the one." So I really, really try to turn tropes and stuff upside down to show it from a different perspective. And this poor white girl is she's she's destroyed in many ways, right? Because she's the one who's 
who's out there and a feminist and doing what she wants to do and suddenly she's coming across this this culture which she doesn't understand the norms of it but she still has to deal with it emotionally like what the hell is happening here you know and I have to say often a lot of times we read stories where a lot of the immigrants come from um, economically strapped backgrounds and the stories are about um, you know making it big in America and suddenly whatever and I like to play with the reverse of that which is affluent Pakistanis or immigrant uh, Indians or immigrants and stuff, and 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 people from here who find it hard to understand. And also, why would they come, right? If you're, but there are so many families in Pakistan who are pedigree rich but pocket poor, so they come here because they need to make money. But yet they have a very entitled self sense of self. So I like to play with all you know, with because everyone. I mean, I remember when I came out to college here, I, I was asked interesting questions such as, "Do I live in trees? Do we have cars over there? Do why am I not wearing a? This was the 90s. Why am I not wearing a burqa? Um, am I already married? You know." And it was very interesting to see the stereotypes and the assumptions. And then to see, and then and then it was always in. Why am I speaking English? Why is my English so good? Why why do I know about? It was it was hard for a lot of people, for a lot of people, to understand that not everyone from immigrant countries um, comes from certain, you know, that we all come from different backgrounds and different diverse backgrounds. And I like to write about that because that's what I've seen and come across myself a lot. So. So I'll probably have an answer to that when I write my next. next. <laughs> I've just started my journey on, of writing. so, And it's definitely something that I would think about, but because Pakistan was closest to home, I felt more comfortable writing about it, even though I've been away for 30 years uh, living here. Uh, it was, you know, having grown up there, I felt more comfortable. But I could imagine writing about people living in the Bay Area sure. and... Uh, the same human element there, and flies to go with them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Any more questions, guys? I'm just going to come around and give you guys the mic. All right. I have a question. Uh, You haven't read your book, but I want to know, since you wrote about the early 90s, right? Is that correct? I haven't read your book. Uh, well, Unmarriageable is set in 2000, 2001, but a lot of my short stories and stuff are set in the 90s, 80s, all over the place. So, yeah. uh, based on Jane Austen's uh, Pride and Prejudice, so that's 2001, but now we are sitting in 2019. Sure. What is the comparison? It's the same. the same. I think there are more cafes and more cinemas. And more girls are wearing jeans and stuff outside. But once again, when it comes to the social mores and the expectations and stuff, women are definitely pushing against it. But a lot of them are still there, especially the pressure to get married. I mean, the thing I see that is, for example, what has changed is that I got married at 24. And I was, I'm not kidding, I was considered over the hill, you know. I mean, I was considered an old maid at this point, you know. And and that, that, yes, but that was back then. Now the age might have gone up to 30, 30, 30, 35 even, but 30. But yet, once you cross an age, that same mental um, stance of you having you being unmarriageable now because you're getting older, sure, from 24 to 30, which is a great and nice change, but nevertheless, that mentality is still there. So as my brother likes to say, say what is that saying? 
as much as things change, they stay the same. So it's sometimes like that too, you know? There's a Punjabi translation for that. What is it? saying what she just said. Lahore, Lahore, I know. Do you know what was the law? No, I, okay. I, I, it's Achha. lurking around I'm, in my I'm sure, no, I'm because sure. Because, you know, here's the qu- question again, because I go a lot to Pakistan sure. and so I'm from, you know, what you are talking yes. to me. So I felt that now the girls have an upper hand mm. and they chose the room. Sure. Because so they are more educated. I think the smart girls always did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But now, you know, because this unmarriageable has become more the for men, this was my take, but I'm not wanting to change this. No, sure, right. sure. But my observing, this See, because like every right. three months uh, is that uh, they cha- it sh- has changed. Sure, and the reason it has changed, and once again, I, I think it's changed class to class. I mean, I, I, I think what you're seeing is more predominant in, 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 in a certain class, definitely, um, which has always had more choice to it. Um, and like there's no single story depending on where you come from in Pakistan you will live a different life you will have different pressures from your parents and stuff but like I said um, what has changed is that more and more women are getting educated and they're going out and working and the marriage age has moved forward and stuff and when you are economically independent you are no longer dependent on a husband to pay your bills and that has given women of course anywhere in the world, a lot more choice, right? You are not going to starve. You can take care of your parents if need be. You don't need a man to do that, to pay your bills. You can also have a kid if you want to. Actually, the men are the ones who are a bit strapped in this respect because they need to get married to have the kids. We don't, thankfully. <laughs> but, uh, well, technically, we don't. <laughs> but um, we're not there yet in Pakistan, but we'll get there. But, um, but, you know, so yes, women are definitely being more choosier because they can afford, to, and literally I use the word afford from an economic standpoint, they can afford to be choosier. And whether their parents like it or not, they're able to tell their parents, because they can pay their own bills, that they don't have to be forced into anything. Meeting someone on an arranged basis and stuff and seeing if they like them. You know, the whole thing with the love marriage, why love marriage is so glorified in Austin and throughout time and stuff, is that used to be in all cultures and all over the world, marriages were arranged. They were either arranged to keep property intact, they were either arranged to keep, even with royalty, to keep, you know, kingdoms intact and forge alliances and all sorts of things. These were economic transactions. They were property and economic transactions. The, the concept of love really came in and twisted that and ruined that. Because, because if when we, think, when we think of love, love is not looking at your economics. Love is looking at whether you're good looking or not and want to have sex or not, basically. <laughs> I know we call it lust also, but that's love too in some respects. So, um, you know, I mean, come on. You see someone across a room, you are not in love with them, please. <laughs> but, um, you know, maybe after the act, but not... So, um, <laughs> So, so you know, so but but that changes the equation because when you look across that room, and if you happen to not set eyes with the sign of the manor, but with the sign's <laughs> driver, but now you're in love with that driver, you have just completely upended the whole concept of arranged and economics, and that's where love has always been glorified and changed the perspective of marriage and stuff, because it really does have the ability to do that. Suddenly, people are running away because you know, even in Pakistan today, or even in a lot of other countries, people who 
don't fit their family's idea of an ideal match, those people run away to get married, they elope. The whole concept of elopement was exactly that because the parents are not against love per se as long as you fall in love with the right person. But if you don't, what do you do, right? And what did wrong person mean? It meant not of the same background, not of the same economic status, not of the same, because that's what marriage used to be. So, um, so you know, just to bring it back to Pakistan, love is all very well, but now that the girls can, um, you know, they have, more, they have a lot more economic independence. They can do so much more across the classes, across the board. And, um, and that has really changed the economics of marriage also. Uh, because a lot of girls are increasingly understanding, rightly so, what, we, what all of us married women know, that it's better to be alone and happy than to be married and miserable. And um, yes, it's true. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so yeah, so what you're seeing is, is I think, reflective of this. um, not to give any spoilers, she 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 gets married in a very interesting way. She does, and yes. for very Thank interesting for reasons. Yes. And and there is a cow involved, not flies necessarily. <laughs> so so definitely, I mean, the economics of marriage come yeah, in there definitely. too. So definitely. talk about that. <laughs> uh, well, so the economics of marriage I- in this case is not so much the marriage, but the wedding, and you know, and I think it's fairly common across cultures where sometimes that commitment, that economic commitment of for the event is outstanding. And well, whatever your social status might be, uh, people tend to spend more than they actually can afford. And this is a similar situation. Yes, yeah, that's what people I'm saying. Across cultures, uh, it, it's just that commitment. And maybe it's with the expectation that there, there will be a lasting impact uh, but which doesn't necessarily happen. Uh, but yes, this I- even in my story, there's a lot, as I mentioned, about marriage and, and the expectation of society of being in some kind of partnership to be able to move, and it's a marriage yeah. partnership. Um, I mean, I, I will furnish a spoiler from my own book, but um, you know, there, there is a marriage um, that takes place in the novel where a lot of the novel takes place, and the spoiler is that we see this huge lavish wedding in Unmarriageable. It goes on for days, and at the end of the book, the two are divorced. So, you know, so they have this huge thing, and then it doesn't even last three months. It's, it's done. Um, but, but I do want to ask you, though, that um, I, uh, what, what differences, if any, do you, can you point out between marriages in a rural setting, and not in a rural setting like feudal, you know, feudal upbringing, but more the privilege, but the characters that are in your book, you know, who are more the servants, the help, the downtrodden, versus versus other marriage systems. Because how these two get married in here, uh, you know, I mean... So so here's what I have focused on um, in the weddings that do happen in this, and and I'm focusing on the wedding, the event of the weddings. Uh, One element, cultural element, which is extremely interesting, those of you who are familiar with Pakistani, and I would imagine Indian and South Asian weddings, there's usually some singing and dancing that goes along with it. 
and, and by far and large, uh, the songs that are sung traditionally at these weddings are usually very tragic songs. Um, they, there's always this element of, oh my goodness, what the heck did I do to get stuck in the situation? It's done very beautifully. Yeah, I, I'm going to quickly interrupt you yes, for a yes, second. My, um, I, I heard um, there uh, uh, my, my nieces had this made, she was older, but anyway, the one lullaby she would sing to them in Urdu it would be Ek Saheli Ro Rehiti Uski Shadi Ho Rehiti, and that was her bedtime. And in translation, it's like one of our friends was getting married, uh, no, one of our friends was crying, wouldn't stop crying because she was getting married. So, uh, and this, she, she was singing this to a baby <laughs> constantly. <laughs> Ek so. And on that same note, they, you know, their story, their sim- similar kind of songs is I didn't do anything, you know, I cried to my parents. What did I do wrong that you're sending yeah. me away? Yeah. I, and so there's this tragic element which, e- despite the fact that as culturally you're looking forward to this event, everyone, your whole life is focused on this one event, but there is that tragedy around right. it. But I think that's also because of the concept of um, y- y- a, girl is, a girl's real home mm-hmm. is considered... Yes, yes, and and so... Her husband's home rather than her parents' home. Exactly. But it's also a home that she will be expected to behave in a way that she was not brought up in behaving. And so she's leaving a culture to go to a culture which is unique, which is different, and she will be expected to behave in a certain way. So it co- talks ab- it's about yeah. the dynamics, yeah. which is unfortunate because then it becomes the women of the in-laws then kind of, uh, it, since they have gone through a process, they make sure that the new, wim- the new the right. bride will go through a similar, somewhat traumatic process herself yes. until she gets to the point of being a woman of power if she has you know, given birth to. System, so yeah. it is a system that many benefit from uh, and those who benefit, you know, w- do not question it. So right. I have a few more questions. Go ahead. Thank you so yes. much. Hello. So my question is about, um, and I, I don't think it's true even here, uh, that it's completely fine to be a really independent single woman all your life. You can be a threatening uh, force in society. If you're a single woman who looks good and is very successful, you are a threat to a lot of your colleagues' wives or whatever it might be. And, you know, I'm a woman who grew up here and I run a company, everything is good. I'm in a sector where 97% of 96% are uh, men. Uh, I hardly ever see women. But then I have to like all my other guy colleagues, they just network with the guys. I have to be nice to the guys, but then I have to have a separate thing for the wives because then they feel special. And at that event, I'm going to have a song dedicated to me by my husband, which my husband doesn't even know. So they know I'm loved and everything is fine, don't worry about it. And then I have like male colleagues who will literally say, Rima, love talking to you, you're really smart, this is awesome, but if you were 300 pounds or a dude, Rima, only so I can better. be smart here, okay? You know, <laughs> Rima and I went to high school together, so, so I can say that. A, a year we overlap. So I'm just saying that I think it's not true. I, even when you say that in Pakistan, women have a lot of choice and they can choose to be single and and uh, have a great life, um, it's probably a difficult place to be. Of meet. course, and, and, I, and I didn't necessarily say they have a great life. I didn't necessarily say that they have a great life, but then I think examining the meaning of great 
and a great life is important in this concept because sometimes you might not have a lot, but if you are still living with your choice and your agency, that alone is enough for it to be a great life for you, you know, because you made that choice of not getting married, perhaps, of not marrying that CEO or not marrying that so-and-so and whatever. And if you are single and you find yourself alone or lonely or whatever, or how we technically tend to perceive a lot of times women who choose not to marry, for that particular woman, just Jane Austen. I'll bring Jane Austen up. Jane Austen was, you know, people, and I and I mentioned this in the first uh, chapter also, um, Jane Austen is often sometimes pitied. Like people will say, oh, she never got married, poor thing. What they don't know often is that she was actually proposed to by an extremely wealthy man called Harris Bigwither. And she said yes that evening. And the next morning, she refused the proposal. She took, she took matters in her own hands. She didn't want to get married. She never got married. She never had children. And, 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 and actually, it, it worked out absolutely fine for her, luckily. But um, whether it was a great life for her at that time, whether it was a life admired by others or not, maybe not. But since she's the one that chose that, I mean, I think, I think, I think for me, the any definition of a great life, be it rich or poor or in between, is when you have made the choices in your life by yourself and you've had those agencies. And I speak from experience here because as lovely and great as my life might seem sitting up here, I know regret so personally. Whether, whether I know regret. I know regret in so many forms. And regret is very hard to live with because it's a lack of agency. It's others deciding things for you, whether it's getting married and coming here, whether it's moving to a state you don't want to move to, but because your husband is the earning power, you move there and stuff. There's a lack of agency there. So what might look like to be a great life for those individuals might not meet that definition of great life and no, stuff. I'm talking more about how independent women are seen as threatening sure. to the institution of marriage in many ways. Uh, independent and women, yeah. Case yes. Everywhere, but in Pakistan, yes. I think it would be more. Similar. Yes, it is. And and in fact, I was there last year, I believe, when when the women's march took place um, in Pakistan. A women's march has recently been taking place annually, and we march with placards about feminism and freedom and everything, and it's lovely. And there was huge backlash on on placards which said divorced and happy, on signs which said don't need to be married, you know, single and happy and stuff like this because like, yes, very much so. It challenges the whole aspect of marriage and patriarchy and who should be happy and who shouldn't be happy and what agency means. So yes, by no means, means, but I still will say that. Once again, happiness and threats and stuff Others may perceive you as a threat, but, but you are not a threat necessarily. I think women who have unfortunately internalized misogyny and maybe don't think they're leading such a great life, even if it looks like that on paper, are threatened by that because perhaps they want to be you or they want to be that independent woman, but they don't have the means to do that. And maybe not just financial means, but maybe not emotional means and capacity to do that either. And unfortunately, I will go so far as to say that does give rise to envy and jealousy and, and, and the stuff that you covet. And a lot of times when we see pettiness and bitterness and meanness, it's someone else's, it's someone wanting to be you. So, you know. It's their own insecurity. Yeah, with men also. I mean, come on. When you have a wife who you're paying her bills, 
you basically have a captive person over there, right? Where the hell is she going to go? It's very hard to leave home or do anything if you can't make your own money. When you have a wife who's earning as much or out-earning you, you don't have a captive sitting over there anymore. Of course that is challenging. When my son went to college, and he is not earning anything any, at all right now, but yet he thinks he's an adult because he's now 18. I mean, that is very challenging for me <laughs> because, I mean, I'm, I'm... But, you know, yes, it is all economics, and, and often traditional societies, unfortunately, I believe, like to keep their women trapped financially. And now that a lot of women refuse to be trapped financially, that's challenging everyone and pushing a lot of ugly buttons out there. But it's glad, you know, it's good they're being pushed. It's good these things are coming out. Things are changing. A lot of, quite a few women choosing not to get married or choosing to divorce and be happy in that way. And that itself is a sea change. So we've got room for two more questions. I believe you raised your hand, and then um, she's had her hand up too for a Thank you. That was my first book, uh, listening to authors speaking about their books here. I just had a question regarding both of you as you wrote your books uh, and you were doing research on your books. As you talked to different strata of society, did it change your own perspective on the characters that you were writing about or did it just kind of in, uh, solidify the way you thought or did it change the way you were writing about the characters in the book? I can start on that one. Thank you, Anna. Um, so the quest, the my stories, my pe the people I created, the characters. Um, I did talk to family members, and I did talk to others, uh, but it didn't change anything. You know, I, I, if anything, it affirmed what why the person would do something a certain way. And so to answer your question, I did do a lot of research, you know, uh, reading books about, you know, that area, about the background. I did talk to people as well about the credibility of actions, uh, just because that's the kind of person I am. I, I've got three sisters, and I, we talk regularly, and I'd say this is what this character is doing. Uh, but it didn't necessarily change my mind about things. I wanted them. In fact, one of the characters, my sister said, oh, is he a pedophile? I said, no, no, he's not. He's not. <laughs> you read something in it that I had not written about him. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so I did not let that comment, you know, change my character. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I didn't. I, 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 I... My characters are Pakistani and human, and my opinion of them and of all of you and humans in general did not change after writing this. But in fact, it became worse. <laughs> One comment is about or question about women's agency. I think I think it has to be supported by the society changing. I think that if Jane Austen executed the agency she could for her time, and we all admire that, but if she could have been a professor of literature at Oxford, she would have chosen that in a heartbeat, of course. And, and, and remained independent, probably. So I think the women's marches and the other women and, and men, too, have this, women's agency is a social product, this is what I wanted to express. 
you know, yes. I mean, I just want to quickly say that, of course, we, we, we are very invested in women's agency and also, but often in traditional culture, men don't have a lot. Men have some limited agency also. I mean, as much as it's horrible that the women often are not able to earn their own independent incomes and are expected to be, you know, have the kids and be at house and work in that capacity, which is work and it's very hard work, but it's unpaid labor. However, oftentimes men have a lot of dreams also, but their role in life is to be the provider and they need to provide well. So they, they have their own restrictions then in, in, in traditional societies where they have to join a career. You know, they can't go off and flounce off and, you know, study, I don't know, stamp collecting. They have to do something which is going to have an earning capacity to be um, even worse than stamp collecting. But, um, but you know, so I don't want to, I, I, I would never want to present in unmarriageable or otherwise a world where only women are oppressed per se or have to live within restrictions. I will say that, yes, I think women traditionally all over the world have had to live with a lot more restrictions. But this is not to say that men also sometimes face their own battles with certain restrictions and expectations and stuff. And, and you know, so, so, so it's always nice when the, gen- you know, going back to gender, when the genders come together, recognize what is put on each other and are able to forge affection and love and be helpmeets or help each other break all those bonds rather than become antagonists for each other. And I think that's what a good marriage is at the end also, marriage of friendships, marriage between, you know, whether you're straight, whether you're LGBTQ, yes. whatever, a relationship and a commitment is two people helping each other grow for the better <coughs> rather than not grow at all or become worse. So, well, I said uh, yeah. married for 60 years, I would happily, I would agree. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, everyone who wanted to get a book so that they could get it signed, I think that unless we have any more questions, because the store all has to close and there's going to be a line forming very soon. You're like, get them out. <laughs> um, if there's anyone who wants to buy a book, please, this is your chance to do it. Please support authors. Um, thank and you, ladies. And independent bookstores. Yes. So, yes, absolutely. Yes. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much for joining us today.